0: Nach Yomi for the Orthodox Union, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges, Perak Aleph, Chapter 1, Rabbi Bini Marilis. We move from book to book, Sefer to Sefer, and we shift a little bit from our discussions and the discussions of Sefer Yoshua. And all of its different facets and forms and issues, to Sefer Shoftim, the Book of the Judges. There's an obvious connection between the two in the sense that it's a continuation of one to the other, period to period in history. But in many respects, it's a very different book. In the course of our learning together we will see many of the differences and the similarities. We'll come to understand the nature of the Sefer and the purpose of its writing for the generations. We'll come to see the differences between Yehoshua and his time, and the Shoftim and their time. And it will sort of form a bridge between the period of Yehoshua and the period of the Navi and the Melech, which is coming in Shmuel, Aleph and Be'ez. By further way of introduction, the book Shoftim takes place over a period of time, close to 400 years. Remember, the book of Yeshua is at most 28 years, but probably less. And the book of Shoftim takes well over 300 years, close to 400 years, to unfold Generations and generations of Jewish people, perhaps amongst all of the different Svarim in Tanakh, it has the largest period of history in it. Most of it good, but very solid periods of not so good behavior amongst the Jewish people. The book itself is written according to that same Gemara we mentioned at the beginning of Yahshua. This book is written by Shmuel Hanavi. That's significant and it will play a role in our understanding of all the stories. The Das writes that the book served as a Musr text, essentially, to the generation of Shmuel and beyond, with respect to fulfillment and the non-fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot. The book itself breaks down essentially into three pieces. The beginning, which is essentially Parak Aleph, chapter 1, and half of the second chapter, dealing with the continuation of the wars and the battles to capture further territories and lands, and the lack thereof in certain cases. Part 2, which is the heart of the book, the largest section of the book, from chapter 2 through chapter 16, deals with the different stories of the Shoftim themselves, the judges themselves. And the last few chapters, Zion, 17 through Khafaleh 21, Deal with two events essentially, something called Pesel Micha, the story relating to an Avodazara, an idol worship situation, the story of the Pilegish Begiva, the concubine Begiva. And um, we'll deal with those stories when we come to them. The contents of the book in general deal with the notion of being with Hashem versus the notion of not being with Hashem and the corresponding results and ramifications of being connected and tied and related to God as a people versus not being connected or being somewhat distant or removed from God and Torah and mitzvahs. And over the course of our learning we'll talk about the differences that exist between what a Shofet is and what a Melech is, the Abba in his hakdama, in his introduction, Deals with the similarities and differences between those different types of personalities and people. What is a melech? What is a shofet? And what's the difference between them? And what's similar between them? And we'll come to see a very interesting repeating process that takes place within the Jewish community, within the land of Israel, for the Jewish people in this time. And we'll pick that up when we get to the beginning of the stories of the shoftim a little bit later on. And for now. Herak Aleph, chapter 1. Chapter 1 essentially picks up a little bit where we left off, with the Jewish people settling in their lands and establishing their homeland and establishing the locations where they're going to be and continuing to conquer some of these lands. We begin. The story picks up, and so it was after the death of Yoshua, in the same way that the previous Sefer began, the previous book began, and it was after the death of Moshe. Here it's after the death of Yoshua. the Bnei Yisrael ask a Shailah. They ask a question of God. Doesn't say who asks. It's not clear exactly how this exactly unfolds. Who is B'nai Yisrael here? They ask of God. They ask of God, who's going to lead us? Lead us out to battle. Lead us out to war with the other nations against the Kananim. The Malbim points out very beautifully, very quickly. Its first comment when it says, Vayishalu. In the days of Yeshua, there was no need to ask of the Urim Vatumim. When asking of God, you're essentially asking the Urim Vatumim, right? But in the time of Yeshua, they didn't have to. Because Yeshua was the one who handled everything with God directly. Sometimes he was mishtamish, he used Elazar HaKohen, he was you had Elazar involved, and sometimes not. A direct relationship, a, di- a direct connection. But here already there's a difference in the status, in the situation. They're immediately they're asking a question. There's no Yehoshua anymore. There's no singular individual who they look to in that way. You have Zikainim, you'll have Shoftim, who later on will take on similar roles perhaps like Yehoshua. But at this moment in time, there's no Yehoshua. There's a void essentially at the top. They had Moshe for many many years. They had Yehoshua for many many years, and now there's nobody. So they go to God. They ask God the Shaila, Who's gonna fight for us? Rashi explains What's Yehuda. Yehuda will lead the way. They'll go first. Because they've given the land over to him. So in his land, and in his territory, leading the charge in the way will be the tribe of Yehuda, which as we pointed out in the last Sefer, makes the point that Yehuda is a significant figure and the tribe is significant, obviously, for all generations, but already at this time, we're distinguishing, we're seeing dis- distinguishing factors amongst the tribes and Yehoshua leads, uh, Yehuda leads. Yehuda says to Shimon, Come with me into my lot, into my territory, and fight with me against the Canaanite. Shimon. And then I'll go with you to yours when you have to battle. Remember when we talked about the the division of the land that the tribe of Shimon was surrounded completely on all sides by the tribe of Yehuda." So here, what essentially Yehuda is saying is, join me in my areas, and then I'll join you in your areas. Come with me to battle. And Shimon goes. Vayal Yehuda. Yehuda goes up. Where do they go? So, first of all, according to some commentaries, it seems perhaps that Shimon doesn't actually go with them, because it only says Vayal Yehuda. At the same time, one can read Va'yal Yehuda is that Shimon gets subsumed under the context of the name Yehuda, and thus when it says Yehuda, it means all those people. One way or the other, they go up. They hit them. They beat them in a place called Bezek, to the tune of around ten thousand people. Where is Bezek? Bezek is a city to the southeast of Yerushalayim. In the camp of Yehuda, to the southeast of Yerushalayim, classically called Eretz Yerushalayim, it's a surrounding areas of Yerushalayim, suburbs in the modern language perhaps. The Das Mikra, who we used very sparingly for Sefer Yeshua, makes the comment that what we see very much so is the case here, is that Yehuda is capturing areas around Yerushalayim, if not Yerushalayim itself. Yerushalayim itself doesn't belong to the tribe of Yehuda, except for one small little uh, enclave area. But essentially an area that's the surrounding areas of Yerushalayim, called Eretz Yerushalayim, is where we're battling at this point. So they go up to this place Bezek, southeast of Yerushalayim. (inaudible) Vayim is Adoni Bezek Bezek. And they find this man Adoni Bezek. It seems that he's some form of a leader, although he's not called a Melech, in the place called Bezek. He's Adoni Bezek. Maybe he's the master of Bezek. And they battle with him. And they battle. They battle these two nations. Adoni Bezek gets away. He runs away. He flees the battle scene. Some leader, right? And he gets away from them. And they pursue after him. And they capture him. Alive. And then they punish him. They cut off his thumbs from his fingers and his toes. So the large, the thumb from the hands and the largest toe the first toe of each foot. Some punishment. Rendering him essentially unable to move. Where does the punishment come from? It seems that it comes from a notion of mida keneges mida. That it's, I wouldn't call it an eye for an eye, but something to that effect. Based on what he says next. Vayomer Adoni Bezek. He says, Seventy kings, thumbs of their fingers, thumbs of their hands, and their feet, were cut off and gathered under, under my table. One can take that literally—that in fact he had done the same thing to other kingdoms—or perhaps it means that he crippled seventy other king kingdoms. That he's some sort of a powerful force. In this region, albeit we'd never hear about him before, but okay. asisi kain Kane Elohim and just as I had done, they have God has done to me. it's an interesting thing. He acknowledges the power of God, he acknowledges the quote unquote irony of what has happened to him, and he seems to accept it. It also seems, in the end of the verse, that they bring him to Jerusalem and he dies there, that they didn't in fact kill him. That he's not uh, put to death as part of his punishment, rather he's allowed to die naturally almost. That that's often right. Perhaps because of what he said and his recognition and his acknowledgement and his acceptance per se, of the justice, of the deen that's given to him, uh, he's not put to death. Doesn't seem maybe perhaps any sort of a reason to kill him. He realizes the power of God in the world. The convenience of an Yerushalayim is that Rashi points out, They went from the place Bezek to Yerushalayim to fight there, so that's where they brought him and that's where he died. Okay, Verse 8. They burned down the city. Now, where exactly is this? So it seems it's surrounding areas of the city of Yushalayim, But again, the actual city of Yushalayim does not belong to Yehuda. And it seems to be in the proximate regions of Yushalayim. And they hit it, they battle there, and they kill a lot of people. And they burn it. it says the Dazo so for him, Why did they burn the city? Interesting. He makes a very powerful, interesting point for us. Why do they burn the city? It seems that they had difficulty capturing the city. And by burning it, it made the ensuing battles much easier to complete. Perhaps say, we can learn that lesson in hindsight by the fact that later on, when the non-Jews come to capture the city of Jerusalem, one of the things they do is in fact burn it down. And one can say also, by virtue of the fact that it's a city center, that it's a place that people look to um, for their manner of behavior, that burning it sort of sets a certain tone. Similar to what happened in the city of Joshua when Yoshua burns Chatzor in the north. The burning down of a city um, destroys the confidence factor and sets in motion, perhaps, great victory on behalf of the pursuing army. what we'll see in the follow-up in the, in the text is that they don't in fact capture the whole city and that a portion of the Yavuz, the Jebusite tribe, is still there at the end, which explains later why uh, David HaMelech has to capture the city again and in fact purchase a portion of it. And then they fight the Canaanim wherever they may be, in the mountains, in the deserts, in the valleys, Verse 10. And now we get the story, as we mentioned previously, the story of Chevron and its capture, the hands of the Jews, the B'nai Yehuda and uh, Kalei ben Iphuna, as we discussed the story there in great detail. We'll simply go through it fairly quickly here. The city itself was called Kiryat Arba before. They then they battle and they, they destroy the three sons, the three Anakim, the three giants. They go from there to Dvir. Dvir is to the southwest of Chavron. Kiryat Sefer, and the city of Dvir had a different name. Also, it's called Kiryat Sefer. We talked uh, previously about what happens at Kiryat Sefer. The two possibilities that it's a physically actual battle. Or perhaps a Kiryat Sefer, it's the place of the book, um, and it's discussing essentially what Adniel ben Kenaz does, Adniel being the first of the Shoftim later on, but also essentially the massive, incredible Tamar Chacham, who returns, um, and reveals all the Torah that was lost. So Kiryat Sefer can be taken both ways. in verse 12. Anyone who's able to hit and capture a Kiryat Sefer, so then I will give him my daughter Achsa. His younger brother, Asnial, great Asniyah ben Kenaz, the first of the Shoftim, who we'll hear about more later, he in fact is the one who captures Kiyaseifah. And as a reward, he's given Achsa. And as it is that she goes further and she now has to make a request to her father with respect to the land that she's given and her territory and her piece of property that Kalev gives her. So she sort of uh, tricks her father into asking her what she needs. But it's she essentially falls off the camel, and falls off the, the, the donkey. He says to her, what do you need? Like, what's going on here? What, what, what's the story here? but She says to him in verse 15, Havali biracha. Give me a blessing. You've given me land in the deserts. Benasata You should give me wells. And springs. He gives her upper springs and lower springs. We discussed it at the time exactly what that meant and exactly why that story fits, and uh, fits in here. Perhaps it fits in here in this in the sense that um, with respect to the general context of all the wars being fought, so then Kalev's story is very significant as he's leading the charge into a very special area in the land of Yehuda. And it's fitting exactly the context of the story in our chapter. <speaking> in <Hebrew> the family of Yisro, the Canaan, who had come to the land as well. They come up from the city of Yeritmarim, which is Yericho, as Rashi points out. And they come to be amongst the people of Yehuda. <speaking in Hebrew> they go and they sit there, they settle there. Continuing in verse Yedzayin, verse seventeen, where we just saw all the battles it seems for Yehuda, now we get to battles for Shimon. This is not the Tzfas in the north. This is an area called Tzfas in the south. If one wanted to put it on the map, so you have an area uh, where Beer Sheva exists, and to the north, east. To the northwest, sorry, the northwest, you have a place called Tzvat, which becomes Chorma in the pasuk. To draw a diagonal from Be'er Sheva to an area called Aza, to the city of Aza, um, on that line, essentially the diagonal line between those cities, the straight line between those cities would be the place called uh, Tzvat slash Chorma, and then that entire area to the south is what essentially would be called um, Eretz Chorma, and that's the area where we're finding. Again, keep in mind, Shimon is surrounded and encompassed within Yehuda. So it's a specific region in the southern portion of the land of Israel, uh, What you would call now, um, the Negev. Three cities, um, that are on the coast. Famous cities which essentially belong to the Plishtim and will, for many, many centuries, belong to the Plishtim. But here, Yehuda has, um, some action in that area. Um, but they don't completely. They don't complete the process. They don't complete the, the the capturing of those regions. You have the city of Aza, the city of Ashkelon, the city of Ekron. These are three cities um, al- near the coast. Ashkelon is on the coast. Azza near the coast. Ekron is to the north. Um, is to the north. All these cities. However, what the reality of these cities is is that they never actually control them. Yehuda does never actually get control of these cities at this time. The people remain. So they have control in the areas surrounding and perhaps in the areas just outside on the borders. But in fact, the cities themselves do not get controlled here. The plishtim remain. We'll talk more about the plishtim in coming chapters. They were well armed in the valleys. Um, they were able to take this the, the mountains, but not in fact the valley areas. Verse 20. And Hebron was given to, to Kalev, as we mentioned before. That's that they mentioned, the mentioned the Jebusite tribes, the people who actually lived in Jerusalem, they were from, according to Rashi, quoting here, Rashi says they're the, the, the grandchildren of Avimelech. Avimelech is the one who Avram Avinu makes the treaty with back in Sefer Bereshis. And since they were not allowed to touch them right? So it goes down to the level of the grandchildren They remain And they remain for many, many years Adah essentially means Through the period of time of the writing of the Sefer Until much later on When David HaMelech uh, is uh, meritorious enough To capture that land So there you get the discussions Of the areas of Yehuda, Yehuda, Shimon and Binyamin And now the rest of the chapter Beginning of this section of the chapter Shifts over um, to uh, the Bnei Yosef, and then the last is a list of the tribes that, in fact, don't do much with respect to capturing for the territory. So the children of Yosef here, interestingly enough, it's not specifically it's not specifically Ephraim um, or Menashe, but it's both. They go towards Beit El, and God is with them. Keep in mind again, very important in that terminology: God is with them. As long as God is with them, they're going to battle. As long as they're going to battle, God is going to be with them. That's a re- re- repetitive theme in our Sefer. They go up to Betel. Betel is in Ephraim, is directly, essentially, north of Yerushalayim. And here's this very interesting story. And they're in the city. Near Beit El, and they're essentially uh, hanging around outside the city, investigating the city. They're serving as uh, spies in a certain sense, like we have in Pasha Shlach Vayaturu, right? They're uh, touring the area, quote-unquote. These gentlemen, these people who are watching the city, see somebody leave the city. The Das Oferim goes into it in greater depth it seems to be that there's some sort of a hidden entrance to the city. How you get in, how you get out. It's smart, right? They're, they're, they're Camouflage, essentially, the entrance to the city, the manner in which it can be captured. But finally, in verse 24, they come upon a person who they see leaving the city. They say to him, Show us where it is, and we'll do you a favor. What's going on there? So you can take it a lot of different ways. Perhaps he understands who they are. And he realizes that there's no hope and he gives up. And he does the favor for them and they do the favor for him. Perhaps he has no idea of who they are. And they want to know how to get into the city. So Stam, they're good people. They want to go in. They want to see the city. So he lets them in. And they're going to do him a nice thing because he shows them the way. If it's the first way, as some of the commentaries point out, so then perhaps he is in the same boat as a Rachav type of character, in the sense that he understands the reality of the situation. He's not oblivious to what's going on around the land of Israel. And by virtue of understanding that reality, he uh, gives up his fellow man. He acknowledges what's going to happen, and he's given a gift in the same way that Rehachav is given a gift in Yoshua. That's the approach that Sofrim takes here. Text continues. Rashi says, He points out where the entrance to the city is. And they destroy the city. They destroy the people of the city. And that person and his family, they send away they do what Macha said. They weren't lying. They weren't playing games with him. He did them a favor. They do him a favor, and the text continues, adds details with him. Eretz even here, he goes to another place, another area, the Eretz which seems to be far into the north. But even he calls a place Luz until this day. So. It seems to be that they let him go and they they acknowledge what he did for them and they allow him to go. So now, subtly, the text shifts in 27 throughout the remainder of the chapter to discuss the other tribes who don't do what the earlier set of tribes do, in fact, do. They don't fight the battles. They don't inherit the land. They don't chase out the other nations that are living in their land. And in fact, by virtue of not chasing them out, they fill the void, right? The other nations essentially settle in these areas and become the thorns in the side of the Jewish people. And the first one listed is Menashe. Menashe is this very Large territory on the Israel side as well as on the non-Israel side, the Jordan side, and it lists off many areas, cities and surrounding areas where in fact they don't, they don't do their job, and they, they settle there, the non-Jewish, the, the enemy essentially settles. Again, in twenty seven, Lower East Manasseh is the base Valley. That's and it's literally in its in its children. That's And the Canaanim settle. Why not? It's there. Big Shan is near the Yarden. Ta'anach is further west. Essentially, a centrally located um, city. And Megiddo, that's listed here is slightly north and further west from Tanach. So it's it's specific areas spread out across the landscape that belongs to Menasha. And Ephraim was not exempt from this. Ephraim Lo reaches a Haushev Ghazir, people that are sitting in the cities of Gazer. Gazer or Gezer is well to the west of Yerushalayim. It's an area of what we would call Imikai And again, the same thing. And the Canaanites settle there as well. essentially means that they took money from them, but they don't. Um, they don't control the areas in the same way. They're not inheriting these people. They're not making them part uh, this land, part of the Jewish people. Zvulun lahorish. So that's one. This one we just read. Moving along to l'amed aleph. Asher Horish, is yoshevi akov ve'yoshevi tsidom ve'es achla As achziv ve'es chelba As afik Ves rechov. These are all cities in Asher. Asher, if you remember on the map. Asher is on the coast of the Mediterranean, the north coast of Mediterranean, um, covering modern-day Akko, modern-day Haifa, um, and going further north. So the cities that are mentioned here, essentially the cities along the coast, going all the way up north, that they did not, uh, they did not take, they did not capture. <laughs> Here's an interesting text. Um, here it says differently. Essentially, what it seems is that the Jewish population was in the territory of the Kinani. Um So they are the majority, they are in large part in those cities, and instead of it being the other way as it was in other places where the Jews were the majority and simply were the remaining little locations, here it's the exact reverse similarly uh, with the other s- sections here you have naphtali in lamed gimel as follows in verse 33 naphtali lahorich is Beis shemesh is bei Anas, Beis mentioned here is not the Beit Shemesh that we know in the modern day israel but it's further north north of the uh, north of the kinneret northeast of the yarden in the areas of what you would call the hermon haaretz shemesh Lamas That again in these areas The Jewish population was not uh, the, Per se the controlling party It's not um, the way it's supposed to be And it ultimately becomes a big problem In verse hahara, And the Amori take to war Right, The, the Amoris uh, begin to fight um, In the areas of And did not allow them to go down into the into the valleys. They are for them a So it seems that what's going on here at this point and heading out to the end of the parak. Malaiyakumim is an area, as we mentioned uh, previously, an area in the center um, of the land uh, where Ben Dan was, and the the Jewish population is not is not successful in those in these areas to the point where you have the Amori fighting Gvulah Amori, essentially that they have they have borders, they have their own uh, they have their own control their own areas. They, they are within, not only lohorishu and not captured, but they have borders. So what you have here is a failing by the Jewish population in these locations to establish their reaches as they should, and um, they will be, you know, essentially, you know, uh, spoken to uh, as an understatement of terms in the beginning of the next chapter. Um, from someone called the Malach, some called some sort of an angel type of person, and they are not uh, they they don't fulfill their destiny. So at the beginning, where you have the beginning tribes, in fact, doing what they're supposed to do, the end tribes listed later do not fulfill that destiny. Do not fulfill, and ultimately it causes a problem for the Jewish people going forward, not for the just the immediate future, but the for the distant future. Uh, of the Jewish population and as we'll see going through the Sefer yoshua the book of Joshua, uh, the book sorry, the book of Shoftim, and going through beyond Shoftim into later Sfarim as well, later books. We continue tomorrow with Perak Bez.